You're listening to the Devoted Women's Podcast, where we share our recorded teachings from our Monday night Bible study. This year, we're in the book of Exodus, and we ask that you do your homework in your study book, or make sure to read the passage in the description before diving in. Happy listening. Tonight, we are going to kick off chapters one and two of Exodus. I always say Exodus. Always. So every year I will say a thing. Last in Genesis, it was naked. So I say naked and I say Exodus, just so y'all know. Um, There will be many more mispronounced words as tonight goes on. But tonight we are going to see God's plan for his people continue. We will see promises from the past come into fruition, regardless of circumstances and even when met with great opposition. We will look at the names of I Am or Yahweh throughout the book of Exodus. Yahweh will make himself known to his chosen people and to the people around them. Today I pointed that out last week in the intro. So tonight we're going to see him specifically reveal himself to us as I am Yahweh present in your suffering. And in chapter two, I am Yahweh, your deliverer. And we're going to look closer at I am and Yahweh and the tie of all of that next week in next lesson. So in addition to his eminence, And that means God's nearness and personal involvement in his people's lives and his role as rescuer. God's sovereignty and faithfulness was forefront in everything that we read this week. One attribute that was especially illuminated for me was God's immutability, meaning God is unchanging. Your homework asked you to go back to Genesis 15, verse 13, Um, where we saw the prophetic words spoken. God says to Abraham, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. So Tanea pointed out last week that the book of Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Moses, our storyteller, Kicks us right off with a little recap. We didn't even have to go back ourselves. He's got it here in the form of a genealogy. And we know in Devoted, we never skip a genealogy because it's never just a list of names. There's always a story there. So verse one, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So why this is a list of Jacob's descendants, we need to remember Israel or Jacob was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, whom God made the covenant with. And tonight we're going to see several of those Um, prophecies come to be. All of those promises that he spoke about, we're going to see several. And I'm going to name three main ones right now. We're going to see Abraham's descendants are literally being birthed into a nation. 
um, we're going to see that God is not playing when he says he will bless those who bless Abraham and his descendants and that he will curse those who curse them. And Moses's birth is the beginning of God's plan to move his people back to the land promised to Abraham. And that was also prophesied by Joseph in Genesis 50, 24. So I know one of the things, one of the major themes that stuck out to me from our study time in Genesis that really just stayed in my heart and was so precious to me was that God uses ordinary and imperfect people to carry out his plan. And we're most definitely going to see that theme carry on into the second part of Genesis or the book of Exodus. So this opener should remind us of the dysfunction and the heartache and the struggles that Jacob's family endured. It's almost as if Moses wants us to remember how God took care of this family despite themselves and despite their circumstances. The stories we are about to read are emotional stories full of pain and sadness. And while suffering and injustice is one of the biggest challenges for humans to believe and trust that God is good, we must remember Yahweh himself is not only present in our suffering, but has suffered more than any of us will ever know. Jesus was an innocent man who took on the sin of the world. He died a criminal's death and was resurrected so that all of us who trust on him can have eternal salvation and an eternal hope. In Genesis 50:20, Joseph tells his betraying brothers that they meant to do him harm, but God intended to do him good. It's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, and I think it's one that puts the sufferings we are going to witness tonight and in the weeks to come into perspective. So no matter what, God has a plan, and his plan is deliverance through Jesus Christ. So all of this from Genesis has taken place, and verse 6 we pick up, Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So I want us to note that 70 people, back from verse 5, it says 70 descendants, right? 70 people. That's still just a big family. We are in New Mexico, and some of us have a family bigger than 70 easy. So um, does that have anything to do with New Mexico? That was hilarious. (laughs) We are, you know, New Mexico, we have a lot of kids. Um, But verse 7 right now is shouting, this is the birthing of a nation. Right now, this is a promise being fulfilled. Our prayer scripture this week was Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. So while Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brother's story is over, Psalms 100, verse 5 reminds us that we are just getting started. In Malachi 3, 6, God proclaims of himself, I, the Lord, do not change. 
And the writer in Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tonight we have a new story, a new generation, but the same God. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So we have um, a new story, a new generation, and we have a new king. One who didn't know Joseph, but more importantly, we should say that he didn't know Joseph's God. I want to point out that we have a story within a story tonight, an embedded narrative. Pharaoh isn't going to just represent himself as an earthly king. We are going to see a bigger story of scripture and the evil king of this world. And we get some similar um, text in the book of Ezekiel, um, chapter 28, with the description of the king of Tyre, right? It's this evil king and it, it describes him and... Yes, he's talking about a physical king, but also of the devil and the king of this world. So we're going to see that throughout this book. Um, Jen Wilkin refers to Pharaoh as a serpent king, pointing out that this guy is present from the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation. So verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the word shrewdly is also translated crafty or cunning. And that should ring a bell for us from the book of Genesis, where we met the serpent, who, depending on what translation you're reading, is cunning, crafty, or the shrewdest. So we're already getting that picture, that parallel. And this king, this earthly king, has limited power, and he knows it. Look what he says. He says he can't kill the Hebrews. I mean, he knows he can't kill the Hebrews. He says they are too many and too mighty. So he knows he has limited power here, and the devil knows that he also has limited power against against God's people, against believers, right? So instead of killing the Hebrews, he will use them. And he wants to gain something from this. This is the exact evil that was present in the book of Genesis with Joseph's brothers, right? Like, first they're going to murder him. They realize, well, what can we gain from him? So we have that same evil in play here. And another thing I want to point out is this man is building an entire case on if an entire, entire political strategy on one word, if. CSB says when. This is a seed of doubt, and it's planted to justify this irrational plan built on fear and a scarcity mindset that says there isn't enough for everyone, and there sure isn't enough for people who are different and considered inferior. And we know this today as racism. That's exactly what is happening here. So as God's people, we are not to ever build our lives on ifs, fears, or hatred for another people group. As God's people, we are to make decisions on facts, faith, and love for God and his image bearers. 
So as we enter these very hard verses and look closely at the attempts of Pharaoh to oppress the Israelites, I want us to fix our mind with a different lens, a lens of promise and hope on the fact of who God is. Faith that his goodness and love for his people is always enough and that his chosen ones are never alone. We're going to look at attempt one of this king to stop the Hebrews from spreading. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's door cities, Pitom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So these were fortified supply cities. So it just gives us more of a picture of this paranoia of this king. So these were um, to guard this kingdom. And what we can see from this is this king himself is in bondage to fear and control. He starts by afflicting the Hebrews with heavy work and unjust treatment. And it doesn't produce the results he desires, so he intensifies his effort, and we're getting this um, progression, this very rapid progression of evil. (coughs) So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I don't know if your homework and when you're annotating, if you notice the word work or labor is repeated four times in those two verses. And in those two verses, the word ruthless is repeated twice. So we learn all the time in Devoted. If you see repetition, it means pay attention. And the author here is stressing something. So... Moses wants us to slow way down here so we can really get what's happening. So this is work like you and I will never, well, hopefully never have to endure. And um, if you can just imagine yourself after a hard day of what we call work, we have no clue. And the word ruthless means that there was zero pity, no feeling of sorrow, no feeling at all from these taskmasters as they afflict this evil. Um, And as they watch this evil being afflicted on fellow image bearers, these are hard, cruel hearts. There was no compassion. They were merciless. So imagine when a mistake is made, the smallest mistake ever. There's no forgiveness at all offered. It's only harsh punishment. Mid-verse, Moses lets us in on um, how the Hebrews are feeling. They're feeling bitter. They're angry. They're hurt. They're full of resentment. It's consuming them. And Moses, in his storytelling and all of this re- um, repetition, it, he intends for it to consume us, too. When we read passages like this, and it should make us think of how bad it is here, but it should make us think of all history and oppression and the way God's people have been treated throughout history. It should make us stop in our tracks, and we should be affected by these types of um, texts. So in Acts um, chapter 7, Stephen again uses this word deceitful or shrewdly. And I want us to really think about this, and this came to mind as I was studying. Um, This is not just physical abuse. 
This is mental abuse. This is being cunning and thinking about ways to hurt someone else. I think this is exactly what Paul is speaking about in Romans when he uses the phrase inventors of evil. And that passage has always made me shudder like nobody's. There are people in this world driven by evil sources who are sitting and inventing ways to be evil, to hurt others. And that is exactly what is happening here in this text. And again, this is the deep evil behind what is driving this racial oppression. This is the work of the serpent king. Not just an evil earthly king. This is the devil at work. Yet the more they oppress them, the more they multiply. So regardless of what the enemy tries to do, how bad he makes it, the sovereign plan of God always prevails. For the Hebrews tonight, for the church, even in the darkest days of early church persecution, one of the early church fathers of the second century had a term for this very thing. He said the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they were persecuted, the more the gospel spread, and the more people came to saving faith in Christ. So tonight, no matter what bitter oppression we are facing, the mighty one of Jacob is building our house. And we have to recognize our enemy, not the people who have hurt us or who are going to hurt us. The serpent king is our enemy. We have to rightly place our anger where it belongs, at the source of all evil. We do not battle against flesh and and blood, but with principalities. My prayer tonight is that in our suffering, we would see that we too are called to be fruitful and multiply. Our commission found in Matthew 28 says, make disciples, aka be fruitful and multiply. And Jesus, Yahweh, will be with us. That is how we fight our battle. Wherever you are tonight, Jesus is with you. And if you let him, he will use your story to multiply his kingdom. Let's look at attempt two. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Shipra means fair, splendid, to make beautiful, to adorn. And Pua means glitter or brilliance. And all of that, defi- all of those definitions for both of these women, um, it's beautiful. All of those words describe beauty. And um, we're going to see later on in our story that Moses, too, is called beautiful. And we're going to learn why he's called that, because he is favored by the Lord. So these women, too, by the description of their names, we know that these women, these midwives, are favored by the Lord. Our homework helped us um, see the overarching story of scripture here by taking us to Matthew and the slaughter of the, the boys who were the infant boys in Matthew. And 
that just shows us in the, the story of scripture that the enemy was um, has been trying to stop the birth of the Messiah since the curse was spoken back in Genesis. So he wants to kill the sons of Israel and kill the promise of his own crushing that is the inevitable. But there's this also, um, there is also this very physical threat present. Um, and this king's mindset is if he weakens the people by removing the, the men, he will remove the threat, right? So which in theory might work, but not with God. As we are seeing both men and women in God's kingdom are equally threatening to the work of the enemy. The worshipers of Yahweh do nothing in their own power. So it totally levels the playing field, y'all. The power of God and the obedience to God are not limited to specific gender. These midwives are ordinary women like you and me. That should be the sweetest ever to kick off Exodus and be a woman's group and open right up with these beautiful women who are um, just like you and me. And what is their superpower? It's the fear of God. It's available to us just the same. And what happens when God's people have a right understanding of the fear of the Lord? Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're absolutely right. The Hebrew women are nothing like the Egyptian women. And um, I want us to see that a proper fear of the Lord produces obedience to his will and commands. So that's for us tonight, you guys. The proper fear of the Lord produces obedience to his will and his commands. Commands like, thou shall not murder. And Proverbs 9.10 tells us, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation here, fear the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. You guys, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit of God will outwit the deceiver every time. Mm -hmm. Verse 20, so God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God is pleased and gives them families. This implies that these women didn't have children of their own. Possibly they were unable to have children of their own. And because these women valued Yahweh and protected life, they were rewarded life. Some translations say God, God established households to them. And to make or build up a house in Hebrew expression means to have numerous descendants or generations. We are called to be spiritual mothers, every single one of us. We may not have our own children, um, but we, every single woman in the kingdom of God is called to be a spiritual mother. 
a mother that fears God, obeys his commands, assists in spiritual new births, and protects life with the sword of the spirit, no matter the risk. Attempt three. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I've used this text a lot of times teaching, and I think this is the most like real, tangible, um, physical uh, description of what is taking place in our story tonight. Every citizen is given permission to kill. Imagine being pregnant. Imagine having a baby and knowing your baby was being hunted. It would just take one slip up, one tip off, one and that was it. And these are the circumstances this baby boy is about to be born into. Exodus 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. So we know that at three months, babies start to really find their voice, move around. Um, At this point, just the accuracy there, you know, like it's still the same for us now. They have a little baby newborn cry. They sleep. You could take them to the movies or to dinner or to. And at three months, we start to see them really start to develop. And um, there is no hiding him anymore. So we aren't told the names of Moses's parents here, but we are told of their lineage. And the couple is from the tribe of Levi. And that's the third son of Rachel and Jacob. And they aren't yet, but this lineage will be set apart as um, priestly servants unto the Lord. So this detail is prophetic of the role that Moses will come into, instituting national worship for Israel in chapters 28 and 29. We will see that. But as our story hones in, um, again, who's our supporting role? An ordinary woman. We are told this mother had a baby and saw that he was beautiful. So the King James um, Version translate this word as goodly. And I love that reference there um, because we get an echo from creation and from God himself. Um, God said he saw and it was good, but for his creation, a man, very good. This little baby is knitted together in the womb. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. And I want to point out that Moses was no more important than any other baby. He didn't have special powers. He wasn't more worthy to live than all of the other babies born and slaughtered. He was simply chosen by God to do God's work. Every every mother, sinfulness aside, we're living in a broken world. And I know not all mothers live up to what mothers were made to be. But every mother would consider their baby beautiful and want to protect them. Um, Acts 7 gives us some detail that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And to me, this indicates this feeling his parents had was much deeper. 
This was an impression from the Lord. When she could hide him no longer, she took him. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And New King James Version translates that, but when she could hide him no longer, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. So the word tabah is ark, and it is mentioned only two places, vessel which Noah built, the vessel which Noah built, and the basket vessel in which Moses was placed. I want to read to you guys Isaiah 8, 1 through 2. It says, Ah, land of worrying winds, that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Do you all know what the definition of ambassadors is? Simply put, it's a person who represents or speaks for a group of people. It's just so sweet. And looking at that similarity, the two places that the word vessel, um, that the word ark is used, we know that Noah built by faith. And we know from Hebrews eleven twenty three that Moses' parents, by faith, put Moses in this tiny little baby boat and that they had no fear of the king. They made a decision based on facts, faith, their love for God and his people. I don't think it's a far stretch to say that the fear of the Lord, wisdom and knowledge of him was what their decision was based on. And in verse four, we see his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. This unnamed sister is Miriam. And we see through her role that every child of God has a plan and a purpose. This girl is precious and brave and ordinary. The power of God and obedience to God isn't specific to age. Young or old, every child of God has a plan and a purpose. Verse 5, Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is one of the Hebrews' children. She knew exactly what she was doing, but she was filled with pity or we might say filled with the mercy of God. Unlike the other Egyptians who had no mercy, this daughter has been filled with God's mercy. The daughter of Pharaoh brings this baby into the kingdom instead of killing him. And this is the epitome of the sovereignty of God and a repeat of Joseph ending up in the house, um, ending up in an Egyptian's household in Genesis. In verse 7, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. As he did with the midwives, God rewards Moses' mother by giving her her family back. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So the deliverer has been delivered from the dangers of the water. She had drew him out of the water. God also made sure Moses would get instructed as a Hebrew here, um, as well as, as um, an Egyptian. Moses still learned about Yahweh and the Israelites, but because he grew up in Egypt, as an Egyptian, he had a diverse education in geography, history, grammar, writing, literature, philosophy, and music, making him the perfect guy to write the first five books of the Old Testament. Like with Joseph, God uses the evil plan of men to bring his glory and deliverance to the Hebrews, to the church, and for us today. How sweet to know that Moses' equipping was for us too. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Acts 7.24 tells us Moses is 40 years old, about 40 years old, and is going to see his Hebrew brothers. This is the beginning of Moses' new identity. Hebrews 11.24 tells us by faith he made a choice to serve God and not power and money. Commentary points out that Moses is acting like a new Cain in the sense that he does see himself as his brother's keeper. His heart has good intentions. He looked at his brother's burdens, he saw them, and he felt their suffering. I don't know about y'all, but when I'm convicted and decide to be obedient and do the right thing, um, I'm always tested and tempted. And we see Moses' fleshly, self-reliant nature conveniently well up here. Just like Eve saw that the tree was good for food, just like Cain saw God's favor for Abel and looked dejected, sin is crouching at Moses' door. As he looks this way and that, he strikes the man in true Cain fashion and buries him. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Who made you a prince and who made you a judge? They reject him. Just as Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and the righteous judge is rejected. And I want you to listen to the words there. These are the accuser's words. Who are you? He questioned Moses' identity. And are you going to kill me too? He brings up Moses' sin. And it's the same for me and you. The enemy attacks us just the same. Who are you? And he always tries to throw what we've done in our faces. So 14b is where I'm picking up. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And Hebrews 11:27 tells us a different story. <clears throat> it says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid 
of the anger of the king. Did anybody come across that cross-reference? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Invisible. So surely Moses was afraid for his life, right? Just as his parents were surely afraid for their baby's life. I want us to remember tonight that there is a difference in feeling afraid, which is actually a God-given emotion, and enduring through that fear in faith. But I think something else is going on here. Moses is exposed. He is confronted with his sin, and he's afraid. Just as Adam and Eve were exposed and afraid in the garden. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. See? And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3, 10 says, And he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So Moses' fear was in the fear of the Lord. It just wasn't quite understood yet. Like Adam and Eve, he was feeling the weight of his sin, and he flees or hides himself. Instead of crying out to the Lord, he's experiencing um, conviction for his sin, but most likely he is feeling condemnation. Conviction is fear that produces faith and spiritual maturity. Condemnation is fear that produces fleeing. We are witnessing God revealing himself to Moses and Moses wrestling with his old self and new self. This again is a continuation of the theme of Genesis. God using imperfect people to carry out his plan. And how beautiful that next week in our lesson, we are going to see God pursue Moses just as he, um, God pursue Moses and meet him and reveal himself to him even more. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. And here's the reality of it. Our sin has a consequence. Moses' sin has a consequence. And again, we're going to see God use what the enemy intended for evil to be used for his purpose. God removes Moses from Egypt to be equipped for his calling, and we're going to see more of that next week. So verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So even though Moses makes a mistake, he, mo he immediately moves back into his role as deliverer. And look how beautiful this language is. He delivered them from the shepherds and even drew water for them. Moses, the one drawn out of the water, is now drawing water out for others. And even though Moses might still look like an Egyptian, we see next week God transforming him into his true identity, just like with Abraham and the patriarchs. While he won't get a new name, because his name is already pretty fitting, he will be transformed. So verse 20, he said to his daughter, 
Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zephorah. She gave birth to the son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses and Jesus were both favored by God. They were both protected as infants and they were both rejected. But look at the wording here in uh, verse 21. Moses was content. And both, so both Jesus and Moses were content to leave their palace and dwell with men. And even though Moses has some spiritual growth to do, what does Moses get for his display of the fear of the Lord? He gets a reward. Just like our other heroes tonight, he gets a place to dwell, a wife, a family, blessing, and multiplication. God dwelt well with him, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. So during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And like Abel's blood cried out from the ground up to a righteous God, the children of Israel cry out to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Throughout our study of Acts, we are reminded that Jesus is the new and better Moses. And I want you to listen to these words from John Piper. Moses delivered the people who were being oppressed. Jesus delivers oppressed and oppressor. Moses delivered the hated race. Jesus delivers the hated and the hater. Moses couldn't deliver the strangled babies or babies thrown into the Nile, but Jesus delivers the babies, the mothers, the abortion providers, the irresponsible boyfriends. He loves and saves every sinner who trusts him. It's convicting. It's for everybody. It's for the evil king if he would have it. But as we will see, he has made his mind up and we will move into that. So as we move into um, worship and prayer time again.